Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of History Hack. Now, this one has been masterminded and brought to us, uh, and he's here with me today, by the wonderful Josh Proven. Hey, Josh. Hello. It's not you doing the talking, so tell us who is here. Today we have uh, with us the um, author of uh, a short guide to Hadrian's Wall, Andrew Tibbs. Um, Andrew, hi, ple- pleasure hi. to have you here. It's great to be here. He said, uh, somewhat as an intruder and a fraud, because he's volunteered to do his first ever um, co-host gig on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for anything. <laughs> You'll both be fine. I'm not that scary. <laughs> You're 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 huggably lovable, Alex. I obviously, I, I mean, yeah, um, uh, slightly like sarcastic, like head, the sarcastic read teddy bear. But um, you have worked very hard prepping these questions for Andrew. So why don't you kick us off? Okay, uh, so let's get started by addressing the most obvious question: um, Why is Hadrian's Wall there? It's a very good question, and you know, to be very truthful, we don't really know. <laughs> um, Excellent, that's what we like to hear. Keep out the iron brew; it's foul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Hadrian's Wall. We we've got a historical source um, that tells us Hadrian became emperor. He was a very military man, and he went on a tour of his domain, and he ended up in Germany on the frontier there. And he saw that the soldiers were all gambling and doing very unsoldier-like things, very naughty of them. Sounds very so, soldier-like. Yeah, it sounds pretty soldier-like. <laughs> <laughs> Hadrian had different standards to, yeah. to everybody else. So, so we're told that. You know, Sorry, Hadrian playing... clearly never met two para, but yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, or any of the legions, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so Hadrian said, you know, um, get off your backside, do drills, do all this sort of thing. And he made them build a, a wooden frontier. So big stakes in the ground. And then he sailed to Britain and found that the, the soldiers uh, in England then were, were the same. They weren't being soldiers. So he commanded them to build a wall um, stretching from coast to coast to, to uh, I can't remember the exact words, but it's something along the lines of keep the barbarians out of the empire. Um, but before we sort of run into any conclusions, barbarians basically just means anybody that weren't Roman. Yeah. So rather than sort of how we see it today. So that's that's the official story, but that was written, I think it's a couple of hundred years after Hadrian died. So you have to take it with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, but what we do know is that it started, it was commissioned in 122 AD. So it's 1900 year anniversary this year. Some archaeologists believe it probably started before then. Um, Hadrian's Wall does have a long history. It's basically a frontier. Um, so it marks the end of the Roman Empire. Um, I'm not going to get into boundaries and all that and borders because there are Roman legal definitions and all that, but basically the edge of the empire. And uh, there was something there before Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall then gets built. And, you know, the reason for it being there, partly to control traffic, potentially to tax anybody because you had to go through the wall, you had to go right past the soldiers to get through the wall, um, partly to keep the troops from being bored, because if you've got bored Roman legionaries, they start causing trouble and they make you emperor. You know, they pick someone mm-hmm. and say, you could be emperor, and, and there you go. You know, the, the actual emperor's got problems because you've got revolting legions and things like that. So there's a lot of, a lot of reasons. We don't really know mm-hmm. the official reason that, that Hadrian would have said. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea that um, basically there's 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 a story about the origins of Hadrian's Wall that is literally just the troops are bored, get them to do something and make them work for their pay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's that's probably the main reason they did it because it's a heck of an engineering feat, and, and mm. you know it's like that you know. Soldiers mm-hmm. earning their money or punishment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a heck of a job building that wall. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, so it replaced what was known, I believe, as the Standgate Line, which was just a collection of forts that ran along the frontier, connected, I think, by a road at one point. Um, but the wall, like you say, is a very complicated thing to build. So, what are the elements that make up? The wall. What is Hadrian's Wall? What's what sort of structures are we looking at here? Yeah, so I think when we talk about Hadrian's Wall, we're, we're kind of misled down a bit of a blind alley because we think of it as a wall, and the wall is only one part of it. You, you, you it, physically, it's a big part of it, but it's within the actual series of structures. It's it's quite a small part. <clears throat> so you you've got the very front. Um, your first line of defence, you're coming from the north-south, you've got what's known as the counter-scarp. That's a little rise of earth. Um, then immediately behind that, you've got the ditch. Um, now, we'll talk about the vallum in a minute, 
that's very different from the the ditch. So the ditch is on the north side, and it's around. Uh, it's about eight meters wide and it's about four meters deep. And it's it's what people, if, if they ever think about Roman ditches, this is the traditional V shape that you go in. There's there's a little slot in the bottom known as an ankle breaker, so you fall over when you. So you got this little mound and straight down into the ditch, uh, and it could be you know quite painful for you if you go over in your ankle. Um, Roman defenses are always quite nasty with little surprises. At the eastern end of the wall as well, on the counter scarp, um, there are a series of, they're sort of like pits, uh, little hollows that would have had um, thorns or um, caltrops. So these are sort of spiky wooden stake uh, defences. We, we found those around Wall's End, so sort of to the east of Newcastle. There's some at a place called Hidden on the Wall, um, another series of defences. Um, so beyond the ditch, you then have the wall itself. Um, we we have three different walls, um, but I'll come back to that later. Behind the wall, um, you have what's known as the military way. So it's it's a road. Uh, it seems to run for, for a large part of it. We haven't found it in every place. Next, we have a north mound. Um, so that is... Uh, soil gathered from the vallum, which I'll come back to, and then it's piled up onto a mound. In some places, there may have been a bit of roadway on top of that. You have the vallum. It's around six metres wide and only three metres deep, and it's not V-shaped, it's more U-shaped. Um, the purpose of that, we're really not sure what they were doing mm. it. And then, that is actually one of the most famous parts of the wall, isn't it? Everybody thinks the Vallum is the main ditch and everything, but a lot of people are surprised to find out it's actually behind the main wall. Yeah, yeah. So it's, we're just really not sure of the purpose. So it runs for most of the way. So it runs from about Newcastle um, through to Carlisle. Now, Hadrian's Wall itself stretches beyond Newcastle in the east and beyond Carlisle in the west. But the Vallum runs for, for all that way. Um, and it, it's just very peculiar because it's quite wide, it's quite shallow. The purpose of it, as I say, we're not too sure. Some people think it may have been for keeping the animals securely. There's one theory that reckons it was a canal. Um, it, what it does seem to have been is an easier, uh, easy way to move troops around, potentially that way. But also... Um, it's just another defence. So this is mm. this is what I say when, when I say Hadrian's Wall sort of leads us down a blind alley because we think mm. of the wall and anything else is sort of secondary to the wall and it's not actually. Mm. It's a series of defences. If you're coming from the north and you make it over the ditch, you breach the wall, and that, and that had does happen uh, in the later period. You know, if you get over the north mound, then you're still slowed down by the vallum. Um, and then beyond that, you've got another mound. So it's a series of defences. It's designed mm -hmm. to slow anybody down, whilst also being quite difficult and challenging for, for the engineers and the, and the Romans to, to build it all. Yeah, it's it's really impressive to see how they made use of the natural landscape and everything like that. And what you're talking about is essentially a massive militarised zone Yeah, that runs yeah. from coast to coast. <clears throat> Um, Josh, take us into ramparts because there's a key point, isn't there? Yeah. Uh, 
Well, you, you, you briefly mentioned the wall itself and the three sort of three walls that are known to have existed. Um, there's also in that a very important thing, just as many people think that the vallum is the main ditch, a lot of people, there's, there's a controversy about whether the wall had a, a rampart or a walk across the top of it, because obviously at the second, it's only about six feet high at any given place. Um, so we don't actually know what the top of it looked like. What, what's the story behind this? Yeah, so that's, that's kind of getting into really controversial territory with archaeologists. <laughs> so we I, th- try. I think it's quite, we, we should sort of clarify that we're talking about the walkway and not a rampart, because when you're talking about Roman sites, ramparts are, are walls themselves. So, yeah, yeah. so let's use terminology walkway. So it's quite, quite clear. So the, the idea was that, that you've got Hadrian's Wall and then on the top, was there a walkway running the length of it? There's no evidence to support or not support. There's no clear evidence. There's some circumstantial evidence. Um, there's a, a capstone found, I think, around the eastern end that some people speculate was a basically a paving stone for the top of the wall, um, which is nice, but you're kind of jumping to large conclusions there because the wall doesn't survive in its original height anywhere um we've got another secondary piece of evidence which shows crenellations so those are, are when you sort of see the castle picture of a castle yeah it's that sort of square cut out that goes big bit dips down dips up and, and does that there's something called the rudge cut um football? which was sorry <laughs> <laughs> i thought you said the rudge cut there. Like cup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was found, I think it's a Roman villa site down south, and it pictures part of Hadrian's wall. It's basically a piece of, um, well, I think you could say it's a piece of tourist hat. Um, someone's visited the wall and they've got their nice little souvenir. Mm-hmm. And it's got the name of about four or five of the forts on Hadrian's Wall, and it shows the crenellations. So that's led some people to sort of say that's evidence there were crenellations. If you have crenellations, it suggests a walkway because crenellations are there to protect you walking along so no one can fire something at you, um, or you can hide behind them and fire down on people. That, that's the only evidence that kind of says we could have something. And, and archaeologists really are divided into two camps. I think there must have been a walkway, whether it was a big stone thing or whether it was a wooden walkway, who knows. But parts of Hadrian's Wall are quite, they're, they're in quite geologically challenging terrain. They're up on outcrops and crags. And if you were responding to someone attacking the wall, they'd made it over the counter scarp through the, the ditch and they're starting to hack at the wall and try to get through or, or scale it, you're, you're going to need to be up there to fire down on people to defend it, but you're going to need to be able to respond quite quickly. So we don't know how many people were, were patrolling the wall, <clears throat> but they're stationed every so often at various fortifications. And if you're being attacked, you're going to need to pull people in quite quickly. And as I say, some of these parts of the wall are quite remote, even from the forts, you know, it takes you quite a while to get there. 
you know, you have to go down to the military way along and back up and you can be climbing crags. It's all impractical. So I think from a practical point of view, there must have been something on the top. But none of, as I say, none of the wall exists in its original form. We've never found anything. If it's been wooden, it's likely to rot it away. If it's been stone over the centuries, the stone has disappeared. So it's kind of quite speculative. I just, I'm really finding it hard to divorce in my brain. Hadrian's Wall from the Wall in Game of Thrones, which is obviously like inspired by Hadrian's Wall, but um, it's probably not as badass. Uh, yeah, you never know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I mean, if you're if you're like some Celtic person from the north, and you're that's a level of fortification you've never seen before. So they were probably thinking it was pretty, you know, it's pretty pretty sturdy <laughs> looking thing. <laughs> and it was yeah. supposedly white, wasn't it? So people think it was like painted white. There's there's been some evidence, um very little evidence. I think they found a couple of sort of fragments in a, one or two places that, that could imply it was whitewashed. It, it it's something we don't know. And again, because, I mean, this is a big wall. It's quite a thick wall. And when it's collapsed, you know, people have taken the stone away. There's been no stone that we found so far that's been lying face down for 1900 years that we've excavated and it's painted white, which would solve the whole problem. So it's quite likely, I mean, the Romans are quite, you know, they're quite a nasty bunch. You know, if you're approaching... A little, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no. They're very nasty, they're horrendous, they're horrible. Um, but they, they're quite... They, they play with you psychologically. You know, it's a lot of psychological warfare. So if you're you're approaching this, like you say, this monument, you've never seen anything like that before. Stone structures in, in Northern Britain at this time are fairly non-existent. Um, even the earlier Roman uh, fortifications in the north that were built under Agricola, they tended to be turf and timber, and there's a good chance they were pulled down once they were abandoned. So a lot of people will never have seen this. And you approach seeing this big monument, you know, 30, 40 miles away, you can see it. And, th- and then if it was painted white, you know, that's that's magic. You mm. know, that's that's quite scary. They'll have heard the stories. You know, they'll have met mm. from white wall. So you said yeah. there's a bit of Game of Thrones in there for you, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> just a little bit, just no dragons. Well, not that we found yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never, right? Um, exactly. We are going to obviously going to talk far more um, detail about the wall, but like you say, uh, people would have taken away the best bits, and it would have been repurposed, wasn't it? So that's all always going to hinder your understanding. Yeah, I mean, we've we've most of it has um, gone. There are some stretches and it it survives in one or two places to what we say seven courses high, so seven stone levels high and and that varies slightly in height. It's usually a couple of metres but most of of the wall has gone. What is left tends to be foundations or lower levels. Um, Sometimes it was repurposed as as farm walls, boundary walls. some of what we see actually has been reconstructed. So you get to the sort of Victorian era, up into the 1950s, early early 60s, and there's a bit of a, a penchant for rebuilding these things, and, and even those interpretations can be quite wrong. There is a section known as uh, Clayton's Wall, um, because they knew 
there was a turf wall and they stuck turf on top of the stone wall. And it's like, no, that's not how the Roman wall looked. But they've just sort of interpreted it that way. So you've always got to be careful when you see stuff. I mean, a lot these days, I must admit, English Heritage do a great job with with some of their sort of visual reinterpretations and, and, you know, gives a good impression. But there's always an element of artistic license and educated guesses in these things. So... So we don't really know what it looked like, whether it was white or whether there were dragons. You know, all this is purely speculative. You mentioned the vellum and uh, the elements of the of the wall. Did we mention how high it is or how high the towers were? Because again, like you say, it's it's pretty low at the second. Do any indications yeah. as to how tall it was? You said you could see it probably from a, from a very long way away. Yeah. So so the. Um, Wall itself, so should probably explain a bit more about the fortifications on the wall. So mm-hmm. there's a Hadrian's Wall. You originally it was going to be um, towers, um, and then uh, small fortifications were called mile castles. And it's sort of the plan we think was a mile castle, and then two turrets, and then another mile castle. Uh, that's the initial planning, and they they start to build it like that. And then they come along and decide they actually want some forts on the wall. So the Stangate forts you mentioned, they're, they're slightly behind. Vindeland is probably the best-known one. Um, Corbridge and Carlisle are some of the others. Um, they, they were, we think, going to be the original bases for um, the soldiers before they then put the forts onto Hadrian's Wall. And we know they replaced it because in some places, some of the mild castles have been or the towers have been excavated under the forts. So they come along and, and they build the fortifications um, and they build the Mayo castles. And there's one, I think it's Mayo Castle 53. It's near the centre of, of the whole wall. It's called Poltross Burn. Um, and when that was excavated, they found some steps next to the wall aspect. So the wall was on the, the north side of it. And then you've got the sort of three other walls of the Mile Castle. And against the, the Hadrian's Wall side, you've got um, these steps. Now, they projected how far those steps uh, carry on, something like 3.6 metres. The site is on a slight slope. So they added the height difference at one end to the height at the other end. And basically, they came up with seven metres high. Uh, it's It's... Again, it's an educated guess, and it's the best one we've got. Now, that is without battlements. That's, mm-hmm. you know, if there's another extension. So the seven metres is if you're going to climb the steps and you got to the top uh, of the battlements of the Mile Castle, presumably the wall is at the same height, it's seven metres. You have crenellations and a walkway, you're probably adding on another little bit. Mm-hmm. So seven metres and... A lot of the territory to the north, about 20, 30, 40 miles, is hilly. Yeah. Um, you've got the Cheviots in the borders. You've got Burnswark, which is over in Dumfries and Galloway, which is the sort of biggest hill in that area. You'd be able to see all the site. And in fact, you can actually see uh, Bird Oswald Roman Fort from Burnswark, although mm-hmm. whether they were occupied at the same time is a whole different question. Mm-hmm. So... It's quite some this big thing in the, the middle. Now, yeah. the towers, we don't know the heights. There's been some work looking at, at fortresses and some work 
looking at individual towers, the optimal height for a tower to be able to effectively signal, um, and not all the towers would have been able to do this, um, but that would be between eight and a half and 10 meters high. So whether or not the towers on Hadrian's Wall are doing the same thing, it's all a bit sort of up in the air. Right. But definitely a very extensive fortification and obviously one that is going to require an awful lot of troops and personnel to to maintain and control. So let's uh let's you know bring up the guys who are involved in, in manning it. Thousands of troops were stationed along this barrier. Now where did they live and uh, how many do we think at any given time might have occupied the war? You know, the, what are the logistics of this <laughs> this insane thing? <laughs> so well I, I think how many are, are manning the wall is, you know, sort of a question from from time memorial. Mm. You know, if every fort was occupied and every site was occupied, so every mile castle, every turret, you're talking about tens of thousands mm. of men, which is a lot of people. It's a lot of resource in a stationary position just to protect you from a small, small mm. groups attacking. So... It's very difficult to say, you know, who was occupying it or even really who built it. You know, we're, we're quite limited. Now, in terms of the construction, we know the legionaries are coming in. So they're sort of the official proper soldiers of the Empire, the one you always see in the films yeah. and everything. Um, their main base is York, but they've got detachments all over the place and they, they start to build the wall. You've also got auxiliary soldiers, which are probably occupying a lot of the forts along the wall, and these are basically the hired help. Um, these are the people that, that come in. They, they, well, like legionaries, they can come from all over the empire, but these are more mercenary-style people, mm-hmm. I guess, would be the, the easiest comparison. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Um, so it's very difficult to say. You know, we, we know how mm. many people are meant to be in a, a fort, how many forts we mm. have. We have 17 along the wall, or we have rather 15 along the wall, and we have um, Vindeland and Carverin, which are on the Stangate, but were right. definitely occupied when the fort, uh, when the wall was, was in use. But it, it's very difficult. You can pluck a figure out there, you know, mm-hmm. you can have five people for one section. Yeah. You know, we've we found um, some of the mile castles, I think, have many what we think are many barracks with like four cubicles. So does that mean there were only four people manning it? Which is mm-hmm. given that a mile castle tends to be the the way through the wall, mm-hmm. you know, would four people be able to defend you between 30 people trying to bash the door in and breach it? Uh, it's a good you know, question. It's yeah, a good question. If they've got a giant, all right, I'll stop. I'll That's stop. true. It's true. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, if you've got giants and dragons, then you really need to be thinking of different kinds of defences, really. We do know that one of these people was potentially my great, 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 etc. granddad. So, I mean, hail Caesar then, you know, cool. Yeah. 
That's a nice one. Um. <laughs> I want to ask, it was there under Roman sort of use for a long time. Does it evolve? So Hadrian's Wall, so the construction officially is 122 AD, may have started a little before that. You know, this is a huge civil engineering project and, and it's quite, complex you have to source where you're going to get your stone from what line are you taking you have to organize supplies temporary accommodation uh, before you build everything so huge logistical thing probably did start planning before hadrian arrived it's in use for around 20 years initially so it seems to go out of use around 142 ad now that Archaeologists sort of talk about it being abandoned at that point because around that time they start building the Antonine Wall in Scotland, which is built Hadrian's successor, Antoninus Pius. Uh, he decides, so what Roman emperors tend to do, they, they want at this period to have a bit of um, prestige. So they have to do something militaristic to look brilliant. You know, Britain was always the sort of target because... Julius Caesar had come, but he hadn't really stayed, and everybody wanted to do better than Julius Caesar, who was the benchmark. Hadrian sort of changes that because he creates the line in the sand. But Antoninus Pius isn't really a military man. Besides, he needs the prestige, invades Scotland, builds a wall. Virtual replica of Hadrian's wall, except it's built out of turf. Um, But all the defensive arrangements are generally the same. So the Antonine Wall seems to be occupied again for a period of about 20 years, till about 162 AD. Around that time, Hadrian's Wall seems to be being refurbished. You know, so there's a couple of repairs, a couple of things like that. It's really fully repaired and refurbished uh, in about the early 3rd century, late 2nd, early 3rd century, under the next uh, emperor, um, uh, Septimius Severus who goes on a massive campaign in Scotland. So there's a bit of trouble at one of the walls that the, the locals keep breaching it and they bribe and doesn't work. So he decides, I'm going to have a big military campaign. Um, Hadrian's Wall refurbished. Um, walls, uh, sorry, uh, Arbea Fort at South Shields is basically converted into a giant granary. So it's a big Roman fort, gets really converted so it can supply the troops to the north. Um, so there seems to be sort of these big periods where, where it keeps coming back into use. So it's never really abandoned, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I, I have to say that the Antonine Wall is an entire other podcast in itself. And yeah. um, it, it, what I will say is that it always made more sense that you would make a wall at that narrow point that they did the Antonine Wall rather than this thing here. Um, and I guess we should blame Agricola's you know, forward depots for the the placement. (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Hadrian's Wall is still in a narrow neck of land. You know, mm. it's, it's between the, the Solway Firth and oh, the, yeah, yeah, the River Tyne. And I think Back then, the River Tyne would have looked completely different. It'd be more like mm. an estuary than I would imagine. Um, so, you know, in terms of early cartography, it kind of makes sense because Hadrian's Wall follows the river valleys till the yeah. central section, then it follows the crags. So it's yeah. kind of, you know, again, this is the Antonine Wall replicating it um, mm-hmm. without diverting it off could have been here. could have been cheaper though because it's smaller extent <laughs> you know <laughs> well that's what they build out there um, the wall is a whole completely different thing with the yeah, grip and that's more We're dangerously people. close to a rabbit hole here <laughs> yes i mean that's more my my academic specialism of fourth century scotland step so, away yeah. from the rabbit hole yes exactly <laughs> let's, let's, going. let's save the Antonine wall for another day and then agricola is a Complete yeah. other day in itself. And Roman Scotland itself and everything. Yeah, so. yeah. Got three more lined up now. <laughs> awesome. Um, but so the wall, okay, um, with permission, Alex, <laughs> we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> the wall becomes much more than a military installation because of the, just the length of time it exists, you know. So, and one of the most interesting things about the remains when you visit it is obviously those those things that are not just solely military. So um, what is, how did civilian life, like businesses, religion, um, society, et cetera, interaction connect with the wall? Yeah, so so although Hadrian's Wall is a, a military structure, um, the, the Roman military really went around on its own. Um, they've, they've got big entourages. I mean, there's one estimation that a baggage train uh, could be something like 10 miles long for the, the army campaigning. Um, so they come up to Hadrian's Wall, they, they start building their fortifications, but you've got a lot of people going with them for, for the money and the support services. Um, so you've got blacksmiths, uh, pub owners, um, slaves, the soldiers' families would have followed them. So, so you've got a whole community going along. Some of them settle outside forts. Um, the forts would have attracted a lot of the, the indigenous population, the locals that would have been attracted to the money, the security of being in the shadow of a fort. Um, so you've got a lot of these services, and we have settlements Outside the vast majority of forts on um, Hadrian's Wall, there's one or two that we haven't quite found it and we suspect mm. are there, um, but most of them have it. Um, the most, probably the most best known is Housesteads, Roman Fort, and that's that's the one that's up on the big hills, photographed. Yeah. But outside the fort, you see a lot of the stone foundations of those buildings. <clears throat> um, Vicus. Yeah, yeah, the Vicus. Um, uh, the other one, Vindolanda, 
um, which had been in existence long before Hadrian's Wall, um, that has a lot of settlement activity outside. They don't tend to have as many stone foundations, so it's not quite as obvious as what's happening. Because a lot of these buildings would have been um, turf foundations with a wooden structure. So, yes, it would have sheltered you from the elements to a large extent. We're not quite sure what the roofs were made out of because we haven't found a lot of roof tiles at these sites. So it could have been turf, may have been slate in some instances, but turf, quicker, easier, cheaper. But they would have been quite damp. You know, you go up onto houseteads, it's very exposed, it would have been quite cold. So yes, everybody's following, but it wouldn't necessarily have been a nice lifestyle for most mm-hmm. of them. We've got one town, um, it's the most northerly Roman town in, in Britain at Corbridge. Yeah, I was so, literally about to ask about Corbridge. <laughs> <laughs> so Corbridge starts out as a Stangate fort. Um, we're not sure exactly when it's established, but it's up and running by the, the mid-70s AD, so long before Hadrian's Wall, probably under Agricola. Um, it marks the eastern end of the Stangate. So that's a road, the road that we mentioned, that connects uh, Corbridge with Carlisle. The road may have extended beyond these sites, but we haven't found anything. Um, but Corbridge is also on the main road north to the wall from York. So the Leadry Fortress is at York. They, they head up on Deer Street, um, end up at Corbridge and, and eventually they can go further beyond that up into Scotland when things uh, progress. Corbridge really outgrows, it has a settlement around it and it outgrows the fort quite quickly. They build a second fort, they may build a third fort, but the town grows. And for some reason, probably because it's on Deer Street, Corbridge really booms as a town and it becomes very you can go there today, you can see the ruins. Um, there's a massive... It's, it's very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> it is, and I, I know why you'll be saying that, because of all the lumps and bumps in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, there's been subsidence there, and it's very peaks and troughs, but none of that is Roman. That's That all tends to be a bit post-Roman stuff. Um, but you've got, you've got Corbridge grows as a town. It becomes very... I mean, the, the best comparison... To, to give a visual idea is probably with Pompeii, you know, because you have a big building that's a forum, so massive square was probably a market administrative building. You have big granaries. Um, you get granaries and forts, but this is a civilian granary. Um, gives you an idea of what they look like, and it's just so well preserved. Mm. Um, it, it's been known about since the 13th century uh, as a time when King John sent people up to to dig for treasure and that, and, and, you know, sort of uncovered bits of it. But it's a fantastic place. And it's just nothing, there's nothing comparable with it, really, in in Britain. Mm. St Albans kind of comes a bit close, and and there are pockets, but this is like a proper Roman town that's untouched, and, and it's amazing. And, yeah, people should go there. Absolutely. Great, great day out. <laughs> but um, the so that's that's really interesting. Um, now, just quickly, maybe, um, what do we know about the Celtic populations on like either side of the wall? Um, how did the this sort of really intru- very intrusive presence affect them? Do we know anything about this? How they sort of integrated with it or opposed it? Yeah, I, I guess it's like anywhere where someone invades your territory and it's quite pertinent at the moment um, with contemporary world events that 
someone comes in and decides they're taking your land, of course, there's going to be people that are up in arms, there's going to be sympathisers. You know, there's a lot of economic benefits to being part of the Roman community. Um, there's protection, um, there's shelter, uh, financial opportunity, you know, lots, lots of potential benefits for a lot of people that would have ruined their lives. You've got this hulking great big wall being slapped down. Like we talked about the military zone. So there's a lot of um, disadvantage. You could lose everything. And if you oppose them, you could lose your life. They would take hostages. You know, if they wanted your children, your family, your wife, your daughters, they take it. Um, it's not nice. It's the very blunt end of Roman occupation. What we do see um, we've got one one indigenous settlement that we know a bit about where it's a farmstead and the wall goes right through it. It's, it's sort of in the space between the wall and the ballum, Milking Gap it's called, and it appears that it was abandoned, um, which makes sense because indigenous people in the military zone would have been a security risk. Um, in the east, we've got some evidence that a lot of uh, indigenous population may have moved down towards the wall to mm-hmm. be in the shelter of the wall um, in the northeast. So that would have had, again, the economic benefits, the safety benefits. In the west, there's some indication that farming may have continued beyond the wall. Um, so parts of Dumfries and Galloway, there's been a bit of a study of one indigenous site, and the theory put forward is that the Romans let people continue to live there. They may have provided, again, security in the wider area in front of the wall Um, and that's because those people were the farmers so they're producing the grain that the Romans would have taxed and taken Uh, they would have produced potentially cattle, uh, horses for them so for the Romans to leave you in place you know the land, you can continue existing but you're giving your stuff over to them, it works for the Romans, for you you get to live so (laughs) it will have been disruptive but I think as well there would have been a bit of, you know, it would have been a bit symbiotic, you know, there would have been a little bit of harmony, a very unfair and unbalanced relationship, mm-hmm. but it certainly worked in the Romans. Yeah. Favor. Especially as we're talking about centuries as well. So, you know, as generations go on, it becomes part of their lives in that part of the world anyway. So it's, yeah. a, it's and a very... It becomes integrated and, mm. you know, there's, there's local people marrying into the army and, and things like that. So, you know, Difficult to see how much rebellion there was. We've got Roman texts that talk about rebellion in different parts of Britain. Uh, we've got Boudicca, you know, as the big mm. rebellion. But is that a great illustration of what else is happening? We just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely very interesting. Now, the we've talked about a lot of the history and everything like that. Your book specifically is sort of a guide to help you interact with the wall visit the wall so let's let's talk a bit about visiting the wall so if you're traveling to the in quotes roman frontier nowadays um what's the best way to visit the wall do you think so i i it, there is a bus which is uh, known as the ad122 it runs for a large part of from newcastle uh towards carlisle it doesn't quite get to carlisle if you're doing public transport that's the easiest way if not by car, because you are talking about somewhere that's fairly rural, remote, and, and 
you know, car you get to stop in places and look at things. So I, I always think east to west is good um, because there, there's so much an offer and, and different sites offer different things. There's a good sort of uh, collection of sites in the sort of northeast Newcastle area. I'm always told if you're walking the wall, you go from west to east because you're against the prevailing wind. But I must confess, I'm not one for walking the wall. <laughs> so, I, yeah. I understand that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I definitely think east is, is the best place to start. And I, I always say to people, start at Arbea Roman Fort at South Shields. Um, it's the site of the first uh, archaeological park. Um, it was discovered in the late 19th century. They did excavations. It became a public park. <clears throat> but it's got some replica Roman buildings. So it's got a fantastic gatehouse. Gives you an indication of how big these things would have been. It's got um, a barrack block that you can have a look and see how the Romans lived. And it's got commanding officers, uh, half a, a praetorium, that building's called. Um, very sort of Italian-esque in style. These these things are 30, 30 odd years old. So, you know, our views have slightly changed of them, but they still give an impression of what these buildings were like. Um, and they've got the rest of the site laid out. Going across, now, I should say Arbea isn't a Hadrianic site. It's, mm-hmm. it's slightly later, it comes in under uh, the Antonine period. There's probably a Hadrianic site there. But again, we can't pigeonhole our views of Hadrian's Wall into one period, you know, because mm-hmm. of multi-period structure. Um, Segedunum, which is Wall's End Roman Fort, is a great one. It has some replica buildings. It's got a great viewing platform, great museum. Um, moving sort of further inland, uh, Hedden on the Wall is the first large stretch of wall that you can see, and it's got the Wylam Brewery in the village as well, so it's always worth a wee visit. And then you come to the central section and you've got Bindalanda, great fort, great facilities, great cafe, ongoing excavations every year that you can actually mm-hmm. see them finding stuff. And, and UNESCO heritage site because of a certain amount of tablets. Yes. You've heard of them. Well, you've got the tablets. You can see some of them. The rest of them are in the British Museum. Um, great. I, I can't remember which one they've got on display at the moment. It's a great description of wretched little Britons. So that, uh, that yes. kind of sums Brutal. up the, the Roman view of the locals. Or, or um, what is the Latin, the Britain city or something like that? It is, uh, uh, yeah. Um, so so Vindeland is a great one because you can see the archaeology in action. And, and there's some like 13 forts on top of each other there. Mm. Um, I was there two years ago and they, they uncovered some of the original wooden defences. So... Fantastic to see what they've got going there. And, and the lead of the excavators, Andrew Burley and Marta Alberti, are great. Uh, you're always open to questions if, if they're out there and, and that you, you can't really miss them. Um, Housesteads is the big dramatic one on the hill. It's a great one to see. Um, you need a fair bit of puff to get up the hill, but the views are fantastic. And it really shows you how remote the wall would have been and how bleak. I mean, I've been up there in autumn. Uh, sorry, spring with students. We've had snow, rail, rain, sun, hail, all in the one day. Um, I also be pushed for um, Chester's Roman Fort. Uh, slightly different, gets overlooked because it's not in such a dramatic location. Um, but it's got a great bathhouse um, down mm. on the river. 
And it's just a very nice, tranquil site, but it's so key to the modern history of, of Hadrian's Wall because it was excavated by John Clayton, who owned the house next door. John Clayton bought up so many forts in the wall and preserved them to what we see today. And then the other one I'll mention um, is Bird Oswald Roman Fort, which is over towards Carlisle. Um, it's one of the best preserved. Uh, it's also got ongoing excavations from Newcastle University. So early summer, I think it's around May, June, the students are out there excavating, doing tours. And they're currently, I think this year, working on some of the settlement. So they're not doing the fort itself, they're doing around the fort. It's slightly different from what you see at Vindolanda. Um, and a great site. Um, I'm going to mention one more, actually. Great Chesters. It's probably the most overlooked, but probably the best preserved fort on Hadrian's Wall. Um, slightly remote. Uh, there's no visitor centre. It's in a farm. There's Hadrian's Wall footpath going through it, so you can visit it. But the wall survives up to, um, the fort walls survive up to seven or eight courses high. Um, it really gives you an impression that hasn't been tinkered with. So Bird Oswald's had a bit of consolidation, so is Chester's. Uh, Vindolanda, that's what they do once they dig it, they, they reconstruct it. You see the Great Chester's very overlooked because it's so rural, but it really gives you an impression of the post-Roman what it looked like afterwards. Mm. Sorry, that's a whistle stop. Great, the great. <laughs> but there's so many, you know, we're, we're talking 70, mm. 80 sites along and around Hadrian's Wall that are all worth seeing. Absolutely. absolutely. Alex, I feel like I've been hogging a lot of the microphone here. Do you have anything for, for Andrew? I just like, presumably this is your book acts, acts as a guidebook as well. So I am actually going um, and I literally, because in my ignorance, I just put Sycamore Gap on the list because yeah. <laughs> I want a really nice photo. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm now starting to think, damn, I need to read this book because I can't just swing by all the other stuff and not notice any of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Sycamore Gap, yeah, the, the Robin Hood tree and all that, although I I think it was heavily featured in Prince of Thieves, which I was made to go to as a school trip. So it's a film I do not like. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's moving Even into the whole director. <laughs> you know that Kevin Costner locked him out of the editing suite. Yes, and, and edited <laughs> down Alan Rickman, who's brilliant. Was he was brilliant. better than he was. Uh, exactly. I caught it at Christmas. It gets very camp at the end, which, anyway, we digress. Um, yeah, Sycamore Gap's a great one. So the book, so there isn't really a whole guide to Hadrian's Wall, and, and what we haven't mentioned are the outpost forts. There's several mm. to the north. There's supporting forts to the south. There's a whole line of defences down the Cumbrian coast, and there's no book that isn't... There's one or two really in-depth archaeological books, which is great if you're into that, but for the ordinary visitor who wants to know a little bit, but not tons, wants to know a few nice facts, there was no book, so I, I, I decided to write the book. Um it's, it goes from east to west, but it tells you, if you want to go to Sycamore Gap, there's no car park there. You know, it's not an mm-hmm. easy You have site. to go to Steel Rig or whatever it is, don't you, and walk. Exactly, yeah. So it kind of tells you that in the guide, but go to this car park, walk there. If, if you're doing, you know, Sycamore Gap, it tells you there's a few other sites nearby that it's worth trying to combine it. Um, <clears throat> tells you how easy it is to park there tells you if you've got a dog what to look out for because i have a dog um 
You go to Great Chester's, you go through a field of sheep, which... Well, there's sheep everywhere. Holly, so he loves that. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of, Hadrian's Wall is now garrisoned by sheep. It's just the rule every, everywhere. <laughs> sheep, sheep and the occasional tourist. <laughs> but yeah, it, it kind of tells you the main sites and what to see, but it tells you some of the hidden sites. So you're, you're going to Sycamore Gap, you come across a couple of mile castles, you go to Housesteads, well, you can see the fort, but there's also Housestead's Mile uh, Castle. You know, it's kind of just wanting to open up some of the more hidden things. Mm-hmm. But one of the other things I've tried to do is, is sort of inform people about how accessible Hadrian's Wall is, because it's not an easy site if you have mobility challenges. Very little of it is, is wheelchair-friendly. Um, mm-hmm. which at this day and age, and when you see what they do on things like the German frontiers, quite terrible now some of the sites could be a lot more accessible um and, and some of the sites english heritage ones and vindolanda all have accessibility statements but i wanted to kind of just help people to sort of if you go to this site you'll be able to get around it or you know you speak to english heritage they'll drive you up to the housesteads fort um <clears throat> someone in my position can't do much to improve accessibility but can try and flag some of the the things for people and you know again this is another podcast yeah that you know but but yeah that the guidebooks aim to sort of try and just help someone that wants to go for a day or for three or four days so so if you get it hopefully you'll find it useful mm-hmm. yes i think uh, alex will be able to give you feedback on that <laughs> that is a review exactly. would be great so yeah <laughs> yeah so it's like, uh, just, just to finish this off, Josh, so it's part of the heritage of the area, isn't it? So children grow up in its shadow. They bring their own children to see it and in the grandeur of the borders. So what do you love most about it? If you were going to spend one day on the wall, Andrew, what would you do? Blimey, I don't know. I mean, I think so. I, I It kind of changes, you know, it, it probably depends on you, your mood, I think. You know, if you want to get a bit of puff on, then it's great to get out, uh, you know, steel rig and, and climb that and have a look at the view and it just reminds you how remote and lonely it would have been for these soldiers that came from much warmer climates and you're you're on this inhospitable hostile territory but I quite like it's it's not a Roman site um it's called Lanacost Priory it's slightly to the south of Birdoswood Fort and a lot of the stone from the fort was taken to build this medieval church and the, and the church part still stands complete and then there's the priory round it there's a couple of hidden stones and there's a really great cafe next to it really... these, these are the important <clears throat> things to know andrew okay yeah, so... <laughs> in the guidebook <laughs> but I, I really do think that's you know it's a great day out because you're you know you can go out to bird oswald see that see the excavations nip down to lanarkost see slightly different period of history with a, a touch of roman and then, you know, have a nice lunch. And, and then it's a nice drive back to, to where I live in the Northeast, you know. But I think the one thing I would always encourage people, if they've got a car, this isn't environmentally friendly, but it's, unless you've got an electric car, is to drive from east to west on the military road, which, you know, you, you leave, it's around Hedden is the best part to start, over towards Bird Oswald. And for a large part of it, runs on top of Hadrian's Wall. So... This this slight aside, it all takes you back to the Jacobite uprisings in the uh, 18th century. Um, when Bonnie Prince Charlie and his army came down from Scotland, they came down 
stationed at Carlisle went south, the the British army went up at Newcastle and had no way of getting from east to west. Um, and, and I think the estimates they write back saying it will take us over a week, and by that time it's too late. So post Jacobite uprising, they build a military road uh, from uh, Newcastle to Carlisle, and for some reason they build some of it on top of Hadrian's Wall, using that as the foundations. There was lots of protests by by the landed gentry at the time saying use the old Roman roads but instead they built on top of Adrian's wall but it's a great drive because for one point you've got the Valum on one side you've got the ditch on the other side and you just get great views and, and it just gives you an idea because it is one of the most remotest parts of England up there so it's a great drive I, I would always say to people do that when you're jumping between some of the sites right well Andrew, that was a, a great whistle-stop tour of the history and the the sites of, of Hadrian's Wall, and I hope that it will encourage listeners to come up north and have a look at this important part of Roman and British heritage. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.